knowing what you believe and why you believe it lies at the very heart of Christian experience, worship, and everyday living. The Bible's not about you. You're not David. Trouble in life is not Goliath. Jesus is going to be David in the shadow. Goliath is going to be sin and death. Who's that make you? Uh, and it doesn't make you the Israelites in the corner going, he's going to kill all of us. That's exactly who you are. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Gospel is that God the Son freely agreed to die our death for us, to suffer our deserved condemnation and doom in our place. And he didn't just agree from eternity to do it, he actually did it. It is fatal, fatal for us to think that we can ever move on from the gospel. The great problem in the evangelical church today where the scripture is concerned is not the inerrancy of the Bible. The great problem in the evangelical church today is the sufficiency of scripture. We don't think it's sufficient to do what we have to do. So we have to wake up what's happening and recognize that the problem really is our lack of theology. Welcome to Theology Gals. I'm Colleen Sharp and my co-host is Angela Whitehorn. And today we have Dan Van Forest on with us. And if you're in the group, you've probably seen me share Dan's new podcast, Christian History Almanac. It's a great podcast. I am thoroughly enjoying it. He just started it on May 1st, and he has every single day, seven days a week, and they're no more than five minutes. And he does a you know piece of church history and then a, a poem or a hymn or um, some sort of reading with it. And, and then some people might know him from Virtue in the Wasteland podcast, which he did. How many years did you do that, Dan? That was uh, five and a half years. We did 326 consecutive episodes. Wow. Wow. So we're, we're really excited to have him on because so many people have said, can you please talk about church history? And then with you having this new podcast coming out, um, we're just excited to have you with us. So I guess just for starters, some people don't understand why church history is important for us to study. Could you talk a little bit about that, why it is important? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you know, the first thing is that the Christian faith is inherently historical. So of, of all of the, the different world religions, we have a faith that more than any other is attached to history, right? If you think of uh, the beginning, the genealogies in, in the Gospels, or certainly the Old Testament, uh, with Paul saying this didn't happen in a corner. So our faith is tied to history in a way that it's not uh, in other faiths. And so we know that especially in that first century, there's something to be learned by digging into the, the, the text and the history, because we know that's a way that God has chosen to talk to us. I think once we get outside of that first century, it becomes, in some ways, it's, it's our story. It's, it's our family story. It's our DNA. It's our family tree. And just as we might want to know about our you know, our family last names or where we come from or do 23andMe or Ancestry.com. History and church history is a way of, of kind of figuring out and a answering the question, who are we, by looking at our collective past. So I think those are the two reasons. One, it's, it's kind of ordained uh, by scripture itself to do history. And, and two, it gives us an introduction to, uh, to who we are and it helps us understand ourselves uh, a little better. 
What do you think about, um, I'm just kind of jumping off from that. Um, I kind of grew up in a, just a general evangelical um, church environment and studying church history is um, brand new to me. Um, Well, not anymore, but when I was reforming, that was sort of my first introduction to my faith being connected to the rest of the church through history. Can you um, talk a little bit about how studying church history might um, help individuals um, think through some of their theology? Absolutely. You know, this is, we, we, the scripture talks about the great cloud of witnesses. And, and this is something that we have access to as Christians, not just the saints in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but also the saints throughout uh, the, the history of the church. And outside of those inspired uh, people, you know, and even, even in the fact, even when people are inspired, we know they're still sinners and saints just like we are. And so they, we have this multitude of examples of people who have struggled to be faithful to, to God's call and, and to, to live in relationship with him at the same time, understanding you know, the depth of our sin and the reality of our, our redemption. And so one, just as an example, you know, so oftentimes when I talk to people who come from a, an evangelical background, they all understand testimonies, right? Every evangelical understands the strength of a good testimony. Mm, yeah. And so what if I could give you not just the testimonies of people living now, but the testimonies of people who've lived time immemorial, how much could we learn? And, and then to borrow from C.S. Lewis, it's, it's not that those in the past are somehow smarter or better than us. They just happen to be wrong, usually in different ways than us. And so uh, it, it's just another way that looking at the, the past in this cloud of witnesses can be, you know, I think sometimes a, a devotional experience. And in my new podcast, that's kind of what I'm going for is, is history, but not just on this day blank, but he, here's why this matters, or here, here's why this is interesting, or here's what this tells us about about us and those who share our, our faith. Yeah, I, I love that. And I, I just think about how, um, like you said, you know, if my testimony is important, what if I could connect to thousands of other testimonies? It kind of, I, I feel like learning some things about church history really helped obliterate that extremely individualistic um, attitude in me and kind of make me start seeing myself as a part of, um, you know, the greater church in a different way. Absolutely. I I mean, just from a a purely historical perspective, if you think of everybody who's alive right now, right, everyone on the planet, however many billion people, for every one person that's alive right now, there have been 15 people who have, have lived and are dead. One to fifteen, and so it, it it can really blow your mind when you think about how big history is and how many people have come. And while that can be frightening in a way that, like, understanding how small the Earth is compared to other planets in the solar system is frightening. Uh, at the same time, it, it reminds us that it's that we're not. It's not just us. <laughs> we're not alone. There are other people who have done this. And as much as we modern Americans love to make everything about us. Um, there, there's a great way in which history takes the focus off of us. And, uh, you know, I, I think as Americans, modern Americans, we can always, always use that, uh, that experience. Why don't we give our listeners just a taste 
and talk about some of the controversies um, from the early church. Yeah, I, I mean, this is oftentimes when I, I start in church history and I start in any class and, hey, where, where should we start? I find that the earliest controversies in the church are the best places to start because they tell us where the church went wrong first or, or where those major uh, controversial points were. And so as we trace the, the controversies, we can kind of start to see how human nature responds to good Christian theology, uh, whether human nature is want to overemphasize the humanity of Christ uh, or overemphasize the divinity of Christ or overemphasize the role of, of works. And so all these controversies, I think, are really important. The easiest way to look at these controversies, I think, is to go to those creeds that so many churches say, uh, you know, on Sunday mornings, the, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. And if you go through those creeds, and if you think through them in your mind, or you, you look at them later on, everything in those creeds is a response to a controversy. So everything in those creeds, if we stop and we ruminate on, we look at them, we we have a good study on them. It actually uh, not only is something we do to confess our faith together, but it also gets us into some of these controversies. Uh, as I mentioned, I think some of the main controversies are those involving the person of Christ. It's why in the creed so often we say things like very God of very God, very man of very man. We're very particular about that because those were the, the earliest controversies. We've talked about the ways that some of those old heresies have been repackaged and put out now today. Like, I don't know if you followed the controversy, the eternal subordination of the sun controversy. Yes, uh, absolutely. That was, a, that was fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. And then we've also talked about federal vision. And I think this is such an important reason why we need to know church history because these same heresies just, uh, come up again, just repackaged. It, can you think of any other examples that of heresies that have kind of come back up throughout church history? Absolutely. Uh, you know, the, the first one that always comes to me is, is Gnosticism, this idea that the flesh is inherently bad. And it's one of the things that the early creeds are really fighting against. And it's something that uh, some of the early church fathers like Augustine really struggled with. And while it's not the same kind of Gnosticism today uh, that it was, say, in the, the second or third century, we have an anti-material view. Um, we, we think matter or nature is inherently bad. We think that which is spiritual is inherently better than that which is physical, which is a Gnostic heresy. It goes back to the Greeks and then back to the early church. But we have a, a lot of, uh, of those tendencies. As a matter of fact, one of the the first books of theology that I read, and this is going to date me a little bit, but one of the first books of theology I read was uh, Michael Horton's In the Face of God. And that was the first time I had a picture of like <clears throat> of a, a heresy and history, but also sort of theology proper. And, uh, and that really, I think, does a great job kind of explaining Gnosticism uh, today. And I, I think that is, that is one of the major heresies that we're seeing a, a resurgence of. You know, it's interesting that you bring up Gnosticism because um, I feel like Colleen and I uh, see that a lot as well as um, we do some uh, discernment. Sometimes we read um, very popular uh, 
books that are out there in the evangelical world. And I feel like that's one that I, I, <laughs> I see over and over. Um, I remember listening to a podcast about a year ago um, where a professor who I believe teaches at a um, Lutheran seminary was talking about um, the new students coming in and, and they give a quiz and every year so many new students say on this quiz that they don't believe in a bodily resurrection for us. And it's not because they um, are uh, actively intending to believe a heresy. It's just because they've never been taught um, that for us, the resurrection is bodily, not just our spirit. And they don't realize, hey, this is a form of Gnosticism. <laughs> um, yeah. It's just amazing. <laughs> and look at how we portray, even in a church, uh, the afterlife or heaven, right? Mm-hmm. It's almost this kind of like disembodied, you know, uh-huh. not as crass as, as uh, playing harps on clouds, but not far from that. And I try and teach, you know, and I talk to my kids about it or when I get to when I'm teaching in churches, it's always, no, no, it's, it's flesh, flesh and mm-hmm. bone. The whole creation is being renewed. And, and I think it's so hard for us to think like that, but it's, it's one of the ways in which we've kind of bought into the spirit of the age that says, yeah, the flesh, the flesh is no good. Uh, Christians are pretty, pretty radical. And in, in that we say, no, the flesh is actually is good. Absolutely. One way that I have heard this um, in evangelical circles is a teaching that sounds like you are a spirit and you have a body or you live in a body. Um, And it has been fairly recently, actually, that I have come to understand that that's not really correct. I am a whole man. I'm a spirit and a body. It's a whole uh, unit. And that's how the scripture speaks of us. So it's Gnosticism. It's everywhere. (laughs) You know, I think a lot of our listeners are are new to maybe Reformed theology. We actually have a, we have a Facebook group with a lot of gals in it, and we've got Lutheran gals too. Um, but a lot of them are newer to to theology, and I think a lot of them know about the Reformation, um, since that's talked about a lot. But can you um, talk about some other kind of turning points in church history? Oh, absolutely. You know, you asked about this. We talked a little bit in the pre-interview, and so I started writing down notes uh, in my notebook, uh, writing down dates, thinking, okay, what would be a fun one to bring up? And pretty soon I had 325, 800, 1054, 14, 15, 15, 17, 16, 18, 16, 48. It just kept going on and on. Um, <laughs> so, you know, to, to there are so many things. I mean, if you're interested in um, the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together and where we started, where we transitioned from the, the kind of narrative didactic of the New Testament into the kind of creedal formula uh, it, it, that we have in, in the modern church. So I think, you know, 325, you know, Nicaea, you know, after the Apostles' Creed, putting that together that's kind of the first big moment. I, I would say after that, uh, we talk about the Reformation and we talk about the, the split in the, the church in the 16th century, but in the 11th century, it happened uh, for the first time. And, and that was with the Eastern church and the Western church. So oftentimes people ask me, what's, what's the deal with Eastern Orthodox versus Roman Catholic versus Lutheran or Baptist or what have you? And that's a story that goes all the way back to 1054. And as a matter of fact, the, the argument at 1054 goes back to 
325. So those are some dates. I think 325 and 1054 are fascinating. Now, I I also would say that as a historian, um, you know, I love American history. And it's something that's a little more familiar to me as I think it is to a lot of people. And so it's always fun when you can take the history that you know and then start to put church history and, and the history of theology alongside of that. So, you know, what's happening between the world wars in America is the, the fundamentalist modernist controversy where, where uh, you all, the, the reformed, really took on a, a, a heavy burden and there was a gigantic controversy and it involved, you know, Westminster East and, and Princeton Seminary and some of the most significant things for the church today were taking place right then in 1928, 1930 between the wars. So for some ancient ones and then for some recent ones, those are some, those are some things I find really, really important. You know, we're talking about what is, um, what are some turning points besides the Reformation? I'm just thinking uh, right now about the Reformation. Um, and we all, uh, Lutherans and Reformed as sort of Reformational Christians that came out of that, we recognize that as a very significant turning point um, for the church. I am curious what you would say. I've heard this um, statement before, and I'm curious how you would answer this. Um, what would you say to someone who says, I wish the Reformation had never happened because it split the church? I would say to that, um, the first thing I would say is amen. That I, I wish the church never split. That that it was tragic. That the Reformation in some ways led, I mean, led to bloodshed. It led to, to absolute tragedy and schism that we're still living in today. And so, yes, if, if we could have not done that, that would have been great. As a matter of fact, most of the reformers, the early reformers, didn't want to split the church. They wanted to try and reform the church from within. And it's Luther who's excommunicated, and it's Calvin who's chased out of Paris that um, that are kind of forced to say, well, if we can't worship in our, our mother church, if our mother church won't recognize the authority of the gospel and the authority of scripture, we're going to have to do it differently. And so it was truth that necessitated that split. And so I think what we want to do is we want to uphold one, the tragedy of what happened, but also the necessity of standing up for truth and, and not just any truth, the particular truths that the church has fought for uh, from the pages of the new Testament to the, the present day questions about who's Jesus, how are we saved? Why is the Bible authoritative? You know, when these questions are, are being played with, uh, sometimes to stand up for truth, there's got to be some uh, some unfortunate schism, and and that's how I would I would answer that. It's unfortunate but necessary, maybe. You know, one of the questions we actually get um, several times in the group, and when I I asked in the group, what do you want us to talk about? And this was something a few people had said. I think we know about uh, the Reformation, or let, let me switch that around. We know about Luther um, and then later Calvin, but there were people that were taking issue with the Catholic church prior to the reformation also. Absolutely. The, you know, we highlight the reformation largely because I mean, the, the magnitude of what happened and because of the direct line between our churches with Calvin and Luther, but it's not as if the church was some monolithic thing where everyone believed the same thing until some rowdy folks uh, in the 1500s started making trouble. <laughs> there has been 
schism and and adversity and diversity in the church since the beginning. And, and Jesus warns us about this. And Paul himself writes about these kinds of controversies that we're going to see from the pages of the New Testament uh, all the way to the, the present day. Um, when it comes to, you know, Luther and Calvin, they were really following on the heels of a guy named Jan Hus, uh, H-U-S, who was in uh, Bohemia, which is the Czech Republic uh, today. And he was actually burned at the stake in 1415, 100 years before Luther. And he was part of a whole network of sort of medieval dissidents. If, if the historical situation would have been different, the Reformation could have gone through Hus and Bohemia. It could have gone through, you know, the Middle East or <laughs> through all sorts of places. It just so happens to be that, that as, you know, in the fullness of time, as things were kind of playing out, uh, the movement that, that started really with, with Luther and then spread out in the rest of Europe um, had a lot of things going for it such that it happened. But they were not, you're right to say, the first ones to complain. You know, you just mentioned Huss um, being burned at the stake, and I know that um, that a lot of believers during the Reformation and other time periods have suffered greatly and been martyred for their faith. I wonder if you feel like that studying church history can kind of connect us, especially as Americans who, you know, we have the freedom to worship um, as we choose in this country. So um, I think sometimes maybe we... Uh, get a little disconnected from persecution and what that's like. Um, do you feel like studying church history kind of pulls us back into that and can make us see the gravity and the seriousness of what our faith is about? To, to answer that, one of the things to, to bring up about why history is important or helpful uh, from the first question that I, I didn't answer, or I didn't bring up, is that history is, in many ways, in the way we come across history, is as a literary form, right? We, we read history books or we watch movies based on history or documentaries. And so it's a literary art form. And one of the things that, that people have, have recognized about literary art forms is that when you are able to, to turn something into a story, it helps us as humans to empathize. It helps us as humans to realize, you know, more what it's like to live outside of our own bodies much like travel does that physically through good literature. We do this through time and space. We're able to travel um, and, and through that gain empathy of different peoples. And so, yes, for, for a people stuck way over here on this continent with, with poor historical educations, <laughs> the, the more we can read about this, yeah, it, it's going to build empathy. We're going to realize that, you know, every time, um, some some guy on the, the whatever says that we're really being persecuted in America today. Um, well, let's let's talk about the the martyrs of the first and second and sixteenth and eighteenth century. I mean, it's 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 amazing. So, if for nothing else, it's the history as a literary experience wherein we're learning and developing empathy for for others. And another question that came up a lot when we asked in the group is, um, and I know this could be just a, a whole episode on its own. But um, could you talk just briefly about how we decided on our canon? Yeah. So, we, you know, as you mentioned earlier, the, the term reformational, um, which kind of I think is a nice way of putting, you know, we 16th century, you know, folk uh, today in the Lutheran and the Reformed traditions, we are the sola scriptura people. So we say, you know, it's not the Pope, it's not tradition. 
it's scripture. And so one of the most effective arguments against that position is to say, well, that's fine that you're sola scriptura, but it ha hasn't your scriptura changed a good bit over the years? And, and that's, that's a, you know, an argument that, um, that goes back to the earliest controversies in the church with a guy named Martian, uh, M-A-R-C-I-O-N, and the controversy over what's in the Bible and what's not in the Bible. And this is where you take, I think, a historical approach and you say, what has been affirmed by the saints? What has been handed down to us? What do we know is without controversy and, and points to Christ? And what has, has the, the great cloud of witnesses said? Absolutely. And maybe not to. And when you do that, you, you start to realize that the, the Bible that we have today, although there are going to be some differences even between, say, if you look at a Catholic friend's Bible, right, they're going to have Apocrypha and they're going to have the Old Testament, maybe in a different, um, uh, different order, some of the books in a different order. The differences are so minute that it, I think we really can have confidence in saying, you know, since the third century, we've had a, a pretty stable canon and there's no magical, uh, no magic to it in a way because it is just, okay, how are the people, how, how does the church decide? But of course we know that, that, that God leads the church with his Holy spirit, but um, he uses means. And I think he uses historical study as a means. And I think that's how we get to uh, uh, an understanding of what our canon looks like. Right. It's, it's really helpful to me to think about um, uh, that it would be very implausible to believe that God would leave the church, you know, without the means of the scripture for some, you know, period of time. Whenever you've got um, folks saying that they've recovered, uh, oh, here's this biblical text, like, for example, Mormons um, and other kinds of cults do this as well. Um, if we think about, okay, but the, the historical church throughout the ages didn't have that, uh, those writings, and would, would the Lord have left the church without these very different doctrines for all of this time? What about those other believers um, throughout time? And I think we can trust that he does uphold the church, and he does uphold us by giving us his word. There's a there's a great uh, a great word that I remember my reformed friends using a lot uh, that that could win you a spelling bee. It's uh, perspicuity, and uh, the idea that when and, and Calvin talks about this that when when God talks to us, He's clear. Now that mm. doesn't mean so clear that we understand every little last bit, but it means He's a God who communicates in word to us, and we don't have to be PhDs. <clears throat> we don't have to be you know. Uh, up to date with the latest, uh, you know, software update. Uh, mm -hmm. God wants to talk to us, and, and and He's clear about that. And so we can say, yeah, you're right. Luther didn't like the Book of James, and and yeah, Tobit might belong or not belong. Ultimately, the message of Scripture, with even these little variations from the beginning to the end, is very clear. And I, I think that's a great um, a great thing that that the reformers hit on. Right, and. We don't need a secret decoder pin. We don't, uh, you know, there's not um, secret knowledge that we, you know, going back to that Gnosticism again, there's not secret knowledge go. that we have to go through all these special methods to achieve it. It's right there in the word of God for us to read. And it's clear. Yeah. So, I mean, really when we, what we've talked about, if we were to go back to that first question where you said, Hey, what are, what are the, the heresies or what are the controversies? You know, the canon 
is a controversy that su surrounds Martian and then Gnosticism, of course. And, and I mean, those are the two big, those are the two big things. The, the third one that kind of brings in the, an the ancient church, the Reformation, is uh, the heresy of Donatism. And Donatism, just the, the quick story, it has to do, you know, during the, the uh, persecution of Christians under Diocletian, a number of priests head for the hills and they say, we're out, we don't want to be persecuted. And once the Edict of Milan is signed and, and Christianity is now tolerated, these priests come back. And there's a big controversy over whether or not the baptisms that these priests who ran away, whether or not they were valid. Now it might seem like a, a weird kind of arcane discussion, but the question came down to is baptism, is are the sacraments, are they based on the worthiness of the priest or the worthiness of the, the ultimate host, God and, and, and Christ? And in and, and what place, is there a place where the forgiveness of sins stops working? Because that's essentially what was being taught, that these men ran away, therefore they, they gave up their birthright, and now everything they did wasn't, wasn't right. And, and this leads to the forgiveness of sins being added to the, the Apostles' Creed as a very important line. And then as we follow it up to the 16th century, this becomes the issue of how do I know my sins are forgiven? And, uh, and once again, it's the Donatist issue. So Gnosticism, mm. Martianism, Donatism, these are the big three. So you gave a, a brief discussion of Gnosticism and Donatism. Just for our listeners who don't know what Martianism is, can you tell us just a little bit about that? Yes, good. I, I always I always liked it when I was a college professor, when there was someone paying attention who said, wait a second, you didn't tell me, you didn't say that, so thank you. Martianism, M-A-R-C-I-O-N-I-S-M, is based on a, a gentleman, Martian, who really was a... a, a I don't want to use too many words here, but he was a kind of a dualist. He thought that there was a bad God and a good God. And everything was kind of this, this battle playing out between the good God and the bad God. And the bad God you see in the Old Testament. The good God you see in the New Testament. And therefore, Martian said, now that Christ has come, we do not read the Old Testament at all. <laughs> and as a matter of fact, he only wanted... Uh, the book of Luke, Acts, and a few of Paul's letters. And that was his whole canon, <laughs> was, was just that. <clears throat> because he had this radical view of, you know, a, an angry, evil God and a, and a good God. Mm. Um, and it's, it's, it, that sounds kind of, you know, like an old-fashioned Zoroastrian kind of thing. But, you know, when I talk to students, when I talk to students about this, when I talk to people in churches, it's something I think a lot more people secretly think than they want to admit, uh, especially mm -hmm. when we run away from the Old Testament or, you know, we, 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 we can't seem to find the gracious God in the Old Testament because we're, you know, fixated on, on some other things. Um, it's, it's an ancient heresy, but one that just like the others is, you know, probably two times every, every Bible study pops up. Yeah, absolutely. I, I hear veins uh, and sort of just the general underlying thought process, I think you can sometimes hear in conversations with folks. I, I used to have a friend who would say, God was a smiter in the Old Testament, <laughs> um, you know, but not in the New Testament. I don't know, because God is different now somehow than then. I mean, it's, it's an interesting thought process, but you do see it sometimes. Yeah, and that's one of the places where history, you know, we're able to see, oh, this, 
this is what we do. <laughs> Humans are bent in such a way that this is where we tend to go. We tend to make errors in terms of, you know, wanting to, to run away from the Old Testament. Mm. And I think scripture knows that. <laughs> and so often that's why we have so many references and so many connections to here's how we do it now. Uh, but for many Christians, just as those early Christians, it's always a tendency to want to say, eh, I don't want that anymore. Um, when you think that, think, I, okay, the, there are many who have thought this before, but here's where we move forward. Well, you know, it's funny. There's a well-known pastor that recently said something like, you know, we don't really need the Old Testament anymore. Yes, um, I, re- we- I remember the verb he used. Yeah, mm, un- We need un- to unhitch. unhitch. There you go. <laughs> Uh, and I uh, used to have an a online Bible study for Theology Gals, and we went through the book of Hosea. And it it's so amazing when you look back in the Old Testament and see how much it points to Christ. Absolutely. And, and you know, if I, I, I'm supposed to, if I can, one of the things I'm, I'm really excited about right now that I can, I'd like to point your, your listeners to is sure. um, we, we I, I work at 1517. And one of the things we do at 1517 is we have an academy. It's called 1517 Academy, and it's free online classes. And we just released a class with Chad Bird, who's one of my favorites, doing Christ in the Old Testament. So um, it's, a, it's a free class, and there's a whole bunch of other classes on there, and some church history, and there's some apologetics. But for this conversation, if you're interested in this kind of thing, definitely check out 1517 Academy at 1517.org and uh, Chad Bird's uh, Old Testament class. It's, it's really amazing. I'm, is, I'm glad you brought, brought that up because I actually have seen that going around. And you did one uh, recently too. Yes, yes. I, uh, once upon a time, I was a college professor. That was my, my old job. <laughs> and when I left to come work for 1517 to really just produce resources for, for churches and for Bible studies and, and for podcasts, um, I, I was able to start this academy with with help from a bunch of people, and it's the idea of getting education, Christian education, out for free, and whether it can be used in churches for Bible studies. We're finding that there are seminaries in Africa and India that are using these classes. Um, it's it's been really encouraging, and so we've got uh, Rod Rosenblatt teaching Galatians, Adam Francisco doing apologetics, Jeff Mallinson doing philosophy. I have a class on the Reformation. And uh, Chad Bird now on Christ in the Old Testament, and they're all they're all free and and uh, really high quality, which is another thing I, I really really enjoy about it. Yeah, I just I just want to highly recommend those, and uh, I had signed up for your Reformation one, and they are just so well done. I can't even believe they're free because they're, <laughs> they're just amazing. And go and look at the list. We'll link that in, in the episode notes. So I know it's a little bit of a distraction for what we're talking about, but this is where you can learn even more. Even more. Uh, yeah. Um, one of the questions that, that we got that, and I don't, I know a little bit from my research, but I'm curious, um, well, about whether or not um, Calvin and Luther paid each other much attention. And I know Calvin kind of came a little later, so that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, Calvin came a little bit later, and by the time that he's on the scene, we we have very little evidence of of Luther knowing much about him. You know, Luther was um, 
you know, knew about him through Melanchthon. And that's really the connection. Uh, Philip Melanchthon is Luther's right-hand man. He teaches at the university there in town. Uh, he's a, a theologian in his own right, a little bit younger than Luther. And he has a lot of connection with Calvin. And so he becomes the go-between. So in the few years that Calvin is active and that uh, Luther is alive, uh, Luther will hear of him through Melanchthon. And we don't really get enough in those extant letters to know what they thought, you know, what, what Luther thought of Calvin uh, in any substantive way. But uh, we know that Melanchthon was doing everything he could to try and take the, the theology of Calvin and make it jive with Luther's theology. And uh, it led to decades and decades of, of controversy in Germany. It, it led to, um, you know, Melanchthon being kind of exiled, <laughs> uh, intellectually at least. It led to, uh, you know, a confession of faith having to be altered and unaltered. Um, and, and it's been a funny relationship ever since, the, the kind of Calvin-Luther relationship. Uh, mirrored not exactly how, we, how it is in the United States, where if you've got Lutheran friends or if you're Lutheran, you've got Reformed friends. It's kind of like, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're, we're on the same team, but sometimes those people that are closest to you are the people that you kind of turn on hardest, you know, because they're so close to you. So it's, um, you know, let's, let's say we're, we're the Avengers and, uh, you know, uh, sometimes we fight against each other, but usually we're, we're together. I'm curious, would you say that, um, okay, I'm just thinking about the United States, that the Lutheran and Reformed um, folks in the U.S. are closer now or further apart now than, say, Luther and Calvin during the Reformation time? Oh, that's, that's a very good question. Um, let me see, what kind of evidence would I need to make a claim to that? Um, it, you know, in terms of... Yes, in the 16th century, people were killing each other because of slight differences in their confession of faith. People, you know, and this leads up to the Thirty Years' War, um, the, the issue of confessionalization in the late 1500s. There was a kind of, of <laughs> a world that we just can't understand as moderns that was so brutal that today, even the angriest online screeds between a, a Lutheran and a, a Calvinist you know, no one's being killed. So it, it's different in that sense. Um, you know, I would say that the, the errors in the Roman church, when the major problem in the church was Rome saying, you have to do good works to be saved. Lutherans and Calvinists, you know, can, can go Voltron together and fight against it. Um, it's when there isn't a common enemy that we tend to turn on each other. I would say American evangelicalism uh, is, I, I don't want to say enemy because these are brothers and sisters in Christ, but as an entity, it is a, a problematic entity. And so I think that's why we're finding, you know, going back to the days of the White Horse Inn and, and, and Horton and Rosenblatt together and, and then up through this new kind of 1517 world and, and what you guys are doing and, and the reformed uh, Twitter and the like, um, you know, I think because we have a kind of quote unquote adversary, relations are are pretty good. I just saw a discussion in one of these Facebook groups that's reformed Lutheran discussions. Okay. And there was reference to the situation between Lutheran Zwingli 
and how that ended. And maybe you could talk about that. Um, and then they said, so Lutherans really shouldn't be okay with Reformed, going back to what happened between Luther and Zwingli. So Lutheran Zwingli, Zwingli is the, Huldrych Zwingli is older than Calvin. He is, you know, the Swiss reformer. And he and Luther, you know, at first, they both have the common humanist background. And they get together and decide, you know, hey, we're going to, let's at a colloquy, and they're going to kind of work together uh, and put together a confession of faith that will work for both the Swiss and for the Germans. And it came down to uh, the issue of, of what happens in the Lord's Supper. And, and you know, it's, it's no longer the issue of, of, say, transubstantiation, which is what was happening with the, the Catholic Church, but rather it was an issue of what was present spiritually present, physically present, the same argument that Lutherans and Calvinists will have today. But Luther famously told Zwingli that if Zwingli holds to that position, that it is not physical body and, and blood, that perhaps we are of a different spirit, uh, interpreted as Luther anathematizing Zwingli and saying we're no longer brothers in, in, uh, in the faith. The first thing is I don't think Luther meant it that way. He was known for explosions, for talking big, uh, but we know from the, the corpus of his work that he did not believe someone was no longer a Christian because they didn't hold to one particular view that didn't have to do with how one's sins are forgiven. So I, I don't think even what he said there was as critical as it's been made out to be. Secondly, Lutherans need to be reminded over and over and over and over that it's not Luther that Lutherans are that have, have an allegiance to, at least historically and institutionally, it's the Lutheran confessions. And while the Lutheran confessions have some harsh things to say about people who hold different views on the sacraments, nothing to the extent that what Luther is purported to have believed or, or said to Zwingli in saying, we're not, we can't do anything together. There are Lutherans who are going to take a very hard stance on this, but historically uh, they're they're in the minority. You know, I'm thinking about how you just uh, brought up, you know, Luther's colorful language and, you know, being known for sometimes having blow-ups. And it just kind of reminded me um, about how much I enjoy Luther because his, he's interesting as a character and um, very raw and real. And it kind of made me think about um, just how reading history is like that. I wonder if you could just speak a little about um, sometimes folks, I think, think history is boring or dry. Um, what would you say to that with regards to church history? Unfortunately, church history teachers are often boring and dry. Oh, um, no. <laughs> <laughs> that was my experience. My experience was I didn't like history. As a matter of fact, I, um, I didn't take a history class a straight history class in college, my entire undergraduate college um, uh, degree, I had to take two history classes and I just took them online as, as tests I could pass because I, I hated history so much in high school because I mm. had such bad teachers. Well, what I didn't know is as I was doing my theology degree, I was getting church history. And that was making, that was getting me really excited because it wasn't just so-and-so moved here, then moved here and then signed this. It was people living and dying and, and their devotional lives and their theological lives. And I found that fascinating and only then realized kind of after the fact, oh, that's what good history is. Mm. <laughs> good history is biography. And it could be biography of one person or five people or a group of people. 
but it's dealing with people who are just like us and asking questions that might be just like ours. And, you know, the, the kind of history that I first did, my, my, um, my first uh, historical monograph is, is just based on a guy's letters because I wanted to try and understand this guy who's dealing with uh, theological controversy in the, after the Reformation. And in order to understand them, I thought, you know, we've got all these letters. Why don't, I, why don't we just translate them and, and try to figure out who he was as a person? So if we think of history as, as a very personal thing, uh, then it's not just what, what I used to tell the students was, you know, chaps and maps and just who's going where or when. Um, but but it's, it's, it's as interesting as, as, as any kind of family history you might do. Uh, and, and there's much more of it. So it's, um, I, I understand why people don't like history. I was running away for it, uh, running away from it for some time and then uh, ended up making my life in it. So I had a change of heart. I'm glad you brought up letters because that's something in the last couple of years that I've really enjoyed is reading the letters of some of these people in church history, even Calvin and Luther and all, all kinds of people. You really see something very different when you read the letters. But I'm kind of wondering if there's any books that you would recommend, because I'm sure the gals in our group are thinking that about now. Oh, my. Okay. So when it comes to books, um, there are, are so many good books. I, I will throw out a couple. When it comes to the, um, when it comes to Calvin, uh, I, I think the best book on Calvin is a recent book uh, called Calvin uh, by Bruce Gordon. And what Bruce Gordon does in this Calvin book is works through Calvin's letters. And that was his primary source. And so more than, than Boozma or other Calvin works, this is a book that deals with his theology, but also who he was as a pastor and who he was as a person. So I think that's really interesting um, history on that level. That's a little bit high level. Um, when it comes to just sort of, you know, a good church history, uh, there's a, a book by a guy named Dearman McCulloch, uh, M-A-C-C-U-L-L-O-C-H, uh, and it's called Christianity, the First 3,000 Years. So you got to do the math on that to see what he's doing. And while it's a big book, um, I have it and I've kind of had it for a long time as just, oh, I want to read about the Puritans. Or I want to read about the ninth century so-and-sos or the Carthusians. And I just pick it up and read a little section. And it's so eminently readable. Um, I, I think that's a great a great text. <clears throat> so those are kind of, you know, a big book on Calvin, a big book on church history. Um, uh, on Luther, there's a book that came out called Brand Luther, which is going to give you a really good insight into Luther the person and what these guys were thinking, devout, devout men and women, but also people who were um, trying to figure out how to make the Reformation work. And so this by Andrew Pedigree goes into kind of the the beliefs, but also the everyday life of, of the reformers. So those are three, Gordon, McCulloch, and Pedigree. And we, and we can write those down and, and link sure. those in the, in the episode notes. I'm glad you brought up a Luther one because you said the Calvin and the other one. And I have a, a Lutheran friend that listens faithfully to the podcast and baptized LCMS. He's in his 60s now. And I know he's always reading every Luther uh, <laughs> book out there. There are um, no shortage of Luther books. Um, if I can okay. just point to one more thing, um, okay. you know, I, I mentioned the Academy as, as something fun. Uh, when it comes to church history and doctrine, uh, I did a podcast. Uh, it's actually a seasonal podcast 
and our first season dropped came out last year and it's called the soul of christianity and it's a 12-part study on the apostles creed oh that'd be great each episode goes into one of the parts of the creed and i um the host is actually uh, a friend of mine debbie winrich and she was complaining that too many of the podcasts on 1517 were too academic so i challenged her and said i want you then to interview smart people and have them bring it down to your level and so uh, i co-hosted with her and we have 12 episodes we've got people like uh, mike horton jared wilson uh, dave zoll a uh, really fun group of people uh, rod rosenblatt uh, each each doing one part of the creed and we look at it historically, but then also what it means for us as believers today. So that's mm-hmm. the soul of Christianity. E- e- everything I do is at 1517.org. So if, if someone just goes and clicks around there, they're, they're likely to find something. Yeah. And we're having, we've had so many people from 1517 on and we're doing two in the month of June. We've had a lot of controversy in May. So we decided. Yes. To- <laughs> well, that's, I was going to, I was going to say, I, I've got a couple hot takes on mops if you want them. But <laughs> no, Dan, this is no controversy June. No. All right. Well, come to my Twitter. My Twitter is hot mops. Oh, boy. Yes. <laughs> we, we, love, we love Twitter. I, you know, I want people to have just a taste of your podcast, and I'm going to keep bugging the gals in my group because I, I've been enjoying it so much. Now, I have to be honest, I listen on Sunday afternoons and I listen to the whole week okay. um, one sitting and you know, everyone's different, but I was telling um, some gals, I said, this is a great thing to listen to in the car with your kids. Like mm, I wish yeah. I had this when my kids were younger because there's, I learned something every single episode, but I think my favorite so far was uh, last Friday. Um, so it was the second to last Friday in May. I, I can link it in episode notes when you talked about um, the John Wesley. Okay, that's going to sound funny coming from a reformed podcast. <laughs> but but there, there's a reason why. Could you tell that story that you told about John yeah. Wesley? Yeah, one thing you might find if you, if you look at Methodist churches across the country, oftentimes you'll see the word Aldersgate. And it'll be called Aldersgate Methodist or Aldersgate something. And Aldersgate was the church uh, that... Uh, John Wesley went to, it was down the street from where he lived uh, with his brother, and his brother had had a conversion experience, and while John was raised in the church and was in church work, really was kind of not feeling it, to, to use a modern uh, 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 you know, way of speaking, and he ended up going with his brother to a, a worship service at this Aldergate, Aldersgate church, where the pastor that night decided to read from the foreword Martin Luther's foreword to the epistle to the Romans. And as Luther is, uh, as the pastor is reading Luther, uh, Wesley recounts this experience he had of essentially having that, that, that rebirth experience that Luther had back in the 16th century. Wesley has as he's listening to Luther. And he credits that as sending him off on you know, while we don't all, while we don't agree with the theology of Wesley necessarily or the Methodists, one of the most remarkable uh, movements in Protestant Christianity and Protestant history that, that went on to affect the Lutheran Church and the Reformed Church and so many churches in America. And it's just fascinating that it started because someone was doing a bit of church history and someone was reading a bit. And uh, so on that show uh, from that Friday, I tell that story and then the reading for that day, rather than a, a poem, I take the reading 
that was read to Wesley. And I do that reading at the end. So this one, some fun. All right. It was good. I had to, I even actually listened, listened to it twice. I went to a Wesleyan, um, a, a small, very conservative Wesleyan Bible college, which is where I began my journey into Reformed theology um, and drove my professors crazy. So I, I really, I really like that story. I don't know. I know that um, I've heard sitting on uh, Rod's back deck that West, that John Wesley said something like the Lutherans are strong on the gospel and weak on sanctification. That was his, yeah, weak on sanctification was his exact line, which then became a tagline for some, some rowdy Lutherans for a while, but, uh, you know, point taken that uh, the, the are uh, heavy on justification. And it's not that we're weak on sanctification. We just put it in a different category and well, you guys know how that goes at least. <laughs> Yes, we're, we're maybe get that accusation sometimes too. Well, Dan, we, we really enjoyed having you on. Um, I'd yeah. even love to have you on again sometime. Cause if you've got any questions about church history, I'm, uh, I live to podcast and uh, I'd love to be on. Well, we talked for a few minutes about your most recent podcast, but I'm not sure we mentioned the name. Uh, tell us what the name of your most recent podcast is. Yes, it is the Christian History Almanac. And you go to 1517.org forward slash almanac uh, or wherever you get podcasts, the Christian History Almanac, seven days a week, 365 days a year. I think we've got at least three years in us. So, you know, start now and, <laughs> and you it's, it's a five minute podcast, uh, yes, you know, yeah. for our listeners. Three to, five, three, to five, three to five minutes, a little bit of music and, and a reading or a poem at the end. Yeah, I, I think for um, any of our homeschool moms out there. It would be a great tool for that because it's caused me to, I'll listen and then I'm like, okay, I want to know more and I'll look stuff up. So um, I'll get I was, that I was just looking at my spreadsheet for this first month of the show uh, where I've got every day listed. And, and I was just looking at it today thinking, my goodness, we, uh, we covered a lot of territory in one month. So it's, uh, you know, just little, little, little glimpses, but hopefully you can start some conversations and, and some questions. Yeah. Well, I'm going to recommend to our, audience it is a great place to start if you're new to church history because you you kind of go around and hit different time periods too um, yeah that was the the, the uh, one of the criticisms of lutherans is that we just live in the 16th century and while lutherans and reformed we do love the 16th century that's not where our church started <laughs> you know i mean we 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 claim that the whole church's history is our own and so i, I try and get around as much as i can well, we really enjoyed having you on, Dan, and we'll hope to have you on again Absolutely. sometime. So um, to our to our audience, thanks for joining us, and we'll be back next week.